So we've been thinking about um, the key issue of our time. I think every generation of the church, you know, things crop up culturally and it bears, it demands more of our attention. And the issue of our day really is uh, anthropology. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And there are two very different narratives that we saw last week that the current cultural narrative is that these categories, male and female, are really um, based on uh, demanding of one's rights, say, that they're fluid, right? That these terms, uh, gender fluidity, that they can slide around, that there's no real thing called masculinity, that there's, if you say, what is a male, that, that uh, you get a lot of different answers to that question, or what is a female? And I think at the most uh, charitable reading of that narrative is that they're aiming really at love. If you notice a lot of the, the liberal churches that are for gender fluidity and they put signs in their yard, they're always saying, this is a place of real love. Now, don't go to those other churches that teach what the Bible says. Come, come to this kind of church because, you know, all that old view leads to patriarchy and abuse and all the bad things that we're trying to overcome and move on from. And what we saw last week is that uh, contrary to that narrative, that, that males and females are anchored in God's design, that they're not fluid, uh, but they're, they're fixed. Uh, they're in nature, we would say, and so I would ask them, I would argue back, I would say, well, I, I actually don't think it's loving to tell someone that their own nature is the problem, because then you put a person at war with themselves, that a male's never become a female, and a female's never become a male, and when we go down this kind of uh, experimentation, that it creates a lot of damage. Say, for example, what we call the detransitioners now, those who have attempted to do this, that it's not worked out, and it's a terrible tragedy. And so we as the church would say, you know, let's reevaluate. Let's think deeply about God's design for men and women and show it to be the loving framework that it is. You know, much to their credit, maybe you saw this week, you say, how, how uh, hot is this topic? If you look at, you know, read something like cleveland.com, did you notice what the Catholic Diocese of Cleveland did? That they came out with a statement on these matters with great clarity. I would affirm um, just about everything that they said, and you should see the great uh, stirring up of emotions that this created on these two narratives. But the point is, is that the Bible has very clear parameters for what a man is, what a woman is, and when we operate truly in God's framework, that that's the place of the most love and the most freedom. And that's a message that we need to live out and explain to others with great patience. Now, I know how you're, uh, some in the assembly are feeling today if you're single. You know, I was single a long time into my 20s, and I, you know, was a church goer, and I'd come into the church, and I'd look at the topic and say, okay, here's another sermon on marriage, and you're just like, where does this leave me? You know, I'm just going to check out, or, you know, this isn't a message for me. Contrary to that, I hope we all see that the reality is this, everybody's going to be single in heaven. Did you know that? Jesus is in a dialogue with the Sadducees in Matthew 22, and they tried to trick him on a question of marriage and glory. And Jesus says, no, 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 there's no marriage and no giving in marriage in heaven. And that's why Christopher Yuan, uh, who writes well about this topic, he says, rather than think of singleness as a temporary state before marriage, think of marriage as a temporary state before eternity. So that's right. So if you're single today, say you're one in Christ that he's all-sufficient. Whenever I'm talking about this topic, I think of who was the most fulfilled person ever. It was Jesus, and he was single. 
Uh, so you've done nothing wrong. In fact, the Bible says there's actually great advantages to being single. I, re I remember years ago, a, a female English professor, uh, she was giving a lecture and she opened her lecture, um, you know, saying something to the effect of, I remember when I was younger, all of my fantasies were being married with children. And now as a professor with, married with four small children, all my fantasies are about being single. Um, <laughs> and, and I thought she said it, and, and there's a lot of, right, your problems don't, don't go away one way or the other. So being single, uh, to remember who we are in Christ, to remember that we're going to be single in heaven, uh, to remember marriage isn't, you know, now we've, now we've arrived and now everything is good. Uh, but some of us, that said, and, and I should say, if you're in that category, you know, maybe you're, you're here say, well, one day I, I want to be married. I might be married. It's really good to think about uh, what does a good spouse look like? Uh, what's God's framework for this institution? What kind of qualities could you be looking for? And again, if you're single, lifelong single, and you have lots of married friends, what kind of advice are you giving them? I know that in my own marriage, my single friends can be a great discouragement or a great encouragement. You know, a kind of single friend that says, wow, you've got a great family. I, it, look at how God's done this for you. Versus a friend that says, oh, you know, get, you know what, what are you doing? Get out of it. So as a single person, you've got great influence on this important topic, knowing that it is temporary and that many of us in this congregation have received the gift of marriage for the short time that we're this side of heaven. And that's what we're going to look at today, not only male and female, but male and female in this institution we call marriage. So first thing to note, it comes up in our passage today with the reference in verse 31 to Genesis, but to make this very important point, that roles... What a man is and what a man does and what a female is and what a female does is anchored in God's creation before the fall. Now, again, the liberal theologians are, are, are slow to make this point. They kind of avoid it uh, because they want to say, well, any kind of difference between male and female or being anchored must be a consequence of the fall, not something anchored in God's created order. But we must see, going back to last week, that these categories are firmly in place prior to the transgression. Now, we call this, this principle that runs all through the Bible is called complementarity. And you'll notice, as I use that word in the notes, that it's got an E in the middle. So you say, to compliment someone is to say a nice thing to them. That's with an I in the middle. But complementarity with an E in the middle, we can think that it's etymo etymologically related to the word complete. That the way that the men and women interact, the man and the woman interact, is a kind of complementarity in their given roles. How do we know that this is the case before the fall? Because last week I didn't have time. But in Genesis chapter 2, we learn something fascinating, and that is that the, the man and the woman were not created at the same time. There's a zoom-in lens in chapter 1, male and female, he created them, that were all in the image of God. But then in chapter 2, there's a zoom-in angle, and what we're told is that Adam is created by himself for a period of time. And in some of the most striking lines in the opening pages of the Bible, before the fall, we're told that, you've probably heard this, it's not good that Adam would be alone. See, everything God's make, it's good, it's good, it's good. You'll read that motif. Again, read Genesis 1 and 2. God makes everything good. Adam's created by himself, and this is not good. And he's looking around at all the other animals, and, you know, there are no uh, suitable companions for him in more ways than one. And God then wonderfully creates Eve from his side. 
Say, great image of companionship, isn't it? Long ago, commentators have said that the woman's not made from the head of the man to be above him, nor uh, from the foot of the man to be beneath him, but from his side as a companion. And in verse 22 of chapter 2, and you think about this, it's an odd phrase if you just play out the drama to say God creates Eve right out of the side of the man, but then there's a little phrase that God then brings the woman to the man. Why does God create in this sequence? The man's created first. He recognizes his own limitations, his inability to fulfill what God wants him to do, and that God then provides a wife for him. I can only say that this is an act of divine grace. We're to see in the first marriage the idea of gifting and grace. And last week we talked about why did God make it so that we need a man and a woman to make a baby? I mean, couldn't he have just said, you know, a woman on her own can just have a baby without anyone else? Or, you know, you just kind of, uh, other ways he could have done it. But the way that he designed it before the fall is that there's a male and a female, and they're coming together with the asymmetry of the consequences of the sex act to produce new life. And I don't think it's a stretch, really. Um, those who would read this in the background of the other ancient Near Eastern literature when God in verse 28 says, now you go out and you exercise dominion, the man and the woman to exercise dominion, uh, to be his representatives on the earth, the image there is really like a king and a queen. That God makes Adam and Eve as the king and the queen, that together to, they're to fulfill those roles, and in fulfilling those roles, they're to uh, have, really, a, a life of great fulfillment. So furthermore, on that, that language of helper that, again, I didn't have time to talk about last week, but when we're told that Eve is made as a helper to Adam, we, this is where the culture just reads that and says, look at the Bible, you can't even get one page in, and Adam's lonely because he doesn't have his maid, and the Bible, of course, always keeping women down. See, so the interesting thing about the word helper in Genesis 2 is that most often that word is ascribed to God himself that uh, far from being a term uh, used in a derogatory manner, what the Bible's doing there is to say that Eve is provided as a gift to help Adam out of himself. That Adam, without the benefit of a woman in his life, cannot accomplish the cultural mandate. He can't populate the earth. That he's inwardly bent on himself. That's what Luther and other commentators would say. He's inwardly bent on himself. God provides a companion. And in so doing, he is able to fulfill the divine calling, the man and the woman together. So complementarity before the fall. To think about it another way, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, God's order is plainly this. God's the maker of all things. He makes the male, gives the male the charge to look after his creation, to look after his wife. He creates the wife as his companion, and as they would trust God, that they would trample Satan under their feet. So it goes God, Adam, Eve, Satan. In the fall, when things go bad, what's the order of authority? Satan goes to Eve. Eve then leads Adam, and in that, God is on the periphery. It's an exact inversion of God's created order. That Adam, instead of faithfully leading his wife towards the Lord to obey the Lord, that, by the way, he's there. Did you know that? A lot of the depictions 
of Eve taking the apple, is she alone? Oftentimes, I think the artists get it right, and that is we're told that Adam is there. In other words, Adam's real omission is passivity. That God told them explicitly how to prosper in his creation, told him to lead his wife, provided him with the gift of a spouse to help him out of himself, and Adam abdicates his authority, allows his wife to lead him, and God then is on the outside. Now, to make this point even clearer, say, who then, you'd think, again, you'd put on your, you know, 21st century cultural sensitivity glasses, well, you know, say, well, Eve is the one who, you know, she's the first one to take the bite of the fruit. Who's responsible here? Well, God goes right to Adam. It's a remarkable um, image of the roles in a marriage. He says, you, Adam, have failed your wife. Not Eve, you know, the, the, the weak partner here, you know, you gave right. No, he comes to the man and says, you, you have failed in your responsibility to lead. So the roles exist before the fall. Now, what happens at the fall is a great story of sadness. That as God would set it up in harmony, you remember that they're naked and feel no shame. And in other words, there's harmony between the husband and the wife. They're living out their roles. The roles then become corrupted at the fall. The tendency then is for the man to be domineering towards his wife, to push her around, to use his, uh, the way his chemistry is, to intimidate his wife, to result uh, the sinful nature that comes out in an unregenerated man. And I seem to think that as the narrative would have it, that the wife's then control, uh, temptation to control and overrule her husband. So the roles do not emerge at the fall, but the roles are corrupted at the fall. And you see, friends, how, how prescient this narrative is. The first thing Satan does is he wants to put pressure on the male-female relationship. He wants us as husbands and wives to be suspicious and to be enemies. You say, what's the first thing, one of the first things Adam does when all this happens? You remember what he says? He says, it's, it's my wife's fault. The harmony is broken down immediately that the two who were gift to one another, they were, they were complementary. They now become enemies. Look at well beyond, let's look today beyond the marriage relationship into our culture. Toxic masculinity the Me Too movement, the, the We Don't Need Men, or the other way that, you know, the extreme examples of a reemergence of a kind of scary and abusive patriarchy. Why people like Andrew Tate, who I don't follow, has like millions of followers because he's, he's reasserting all the negatives of a kind of domineering major culture. The point is, Maybe you're here today and you, you say, I'm not so sure about Satan. You know, I think a bit about God and spiritual things, but Satan, you know, you're wigging me out. Think of Satan's primary goal. One of his primary goals is to put pressure on the male-female relationship, both in marriage and in culture. Look at how successful he is. And when you lose the marriage, you lose the church, you lose the church, you lose the culture, and so it goes. Point is, the roles, as God made it, male and female, are anchored in nature. That there's such a thing as real masculinity and such a thing as real femininity. 
that gender types follow those two sexes. We're dimorphic, we're complementary. Those roles are strained at the fall, and we live in the downstream of the great consequences of that event. Now, in our passage today in Ephesians, that Paul is telling us uh, a restoration of those roles, what the man is to do and what the woman is to do. And so we're going to start with the men. But before I do, it's so crucial in a, in a passage that can trigger all kinds of things with what we're used to hearing. But notice that this passage is addressed to Christ followers. That the reason we started at verse 15 is because Paul is presuming that everyone who's reading the first audience or hearing Ephesians, probably more likely, is someone who says, yes, I believe in Jesus. I recognize that I'm a great sinner, that I, I, I'm in need of his grace, and I believe that the Bible has a, a corrective function on my life. That me as a man of, of my household, that the Bible has an authority under my life, that I want to recognize my sinfulness, what God has done for me on the cross, and likewise for the lady, that the assumption here is that before we get to these instructions, there's the primary thing about whether Christ is real in our lives. So if you're here today and, you know, you're not a Christian, I would say the first step isn't to start thinking about roles in marriage. The first thing to, to say is, what do I do with Jesus? And when we respond to Jesus, then we live in light of that. So this presumes that it's talking to people who are under God's word. Now let's look. We'll start with the men, and the reason why we're going to start with the husbands will, will quickly appear. But verse 23 is where we get this major principle in Scripture that it is not one place. It's in Genesis. It's in many places. The notion of male headship in the home. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their husbands, that this is the principle that men lead in the home. Now, what does that mean? And I think the first thing we ought to notice here is that we have a model, that we have a model of what male headship in the home looks like, and it is the Lord Jesus himself. Have a look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 29, that we're nourishing and cherishing our wives just as Christ does the church. So before our minds get all over, say, what could it possibly mean to lead in the home, to, to, to be the head of my home, and all that, that conjures up to say, wait, I have a model in what Jesus did for us. So any notion that I can, you know, define my leadership any way that I want it, or worse yet, with the way that the culture or TV defines it, that's a big problem. Jesus is the example. And three times, men, no fewer than three times, husbands are charged to love their wives. Look at 25. Husbands, love your wives. How about verse 28? In the same way, husbands should love their wives. Down to 33. However, let each one of you love his wife. That the charge, men, that as we would lead in our homes is to be like Jesus and to love our wives. You know, a long time ago, a man who was mentoring me before I became a dad, thankfully, he said, well, one day you'll have children. You know, that day did, did come for us. And you, you're overwhelmed. You get that little child in your hands, and you think, oh, I would, I would do anything for this child. I want them to have, a, you know, a good life. I don't want to mess them up. 
And the, the, what that man told me is that when you have children, what's the best gift? What's the best gift I can give my sons? You know what it is? To love their mom. The best gift I can give my sons is to faithfully love their mother. Because that is the kind of thing that anchors uh, a young mind to say unconditional love is possible in this world that I'm not going anywhere. We're going to work through things. So husbands to love. And closely behind love, if you start to define love, exactly what verse 25 says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, loved us. How did he do that? By giving himself up for, for us. That is by sacrificing. So male headship, leadership, is closely associated with sacrificial living. So men, I, I have to ask us, is my leading in my home marked by serving? Do I move towards, that's a, a key idea, am I moving towards my wife and my kids? I mean, how much today, you know, dad's out in the garage tinkering, he's out to lunch, he doesn't have a clue, he's lazy, he's out with his buddy. Say, no, we're called to engage. It's been a long day at work, I know. The stresses of the marketplace, you wanna come home and check out? I understand, believe me, I do. But you remember to say, what did Jesus do? When things were hard for him, when he was being taxed and pressured and stressed by the world, did he disengage? No, he moved towards his family. Do I provide for my family? Do I protect my family? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? That he protects us, he looks after us, he died for us, he provides for us? This is the space of male headship. Sacrifice, protection, provision, engagement, energy, those are good things to think in terms of. And, and to press this a bit further, you'll notice too that a man, any Christian man in a marriage, should be supremely concerned about his wife's spiritual growth. Do you see that there uh, is an element here that she should be, as the church is sanctified, that the husband, not that the husband can sanctify his wife, but should create an environment where she can be sanctified, and verse 29, nourished. So think of that. In my home as a man, is my home a place where my wife is growing in her faith in Jesus? Now that's a scary thought. Say, we're all going to be called before the Lord Jesus. I'm going to be asked as held accountable as the first man did. Did you choke the life out of your home? Being an angry and corrosive man? Or did your wife flourish? And I'm responsible for that. That's what it says. Now, men, it's a hard thing today. Think about the incalculable damage we do. When we read Ephesians 5, we tell our wives, you're going to submit to me. You do what I say. I'm the boss around here. And then we go down to our basements and look at pornography. That we're more interested in playing video games. That we're more interested in being out of the town. Do you see that that becomes, not only have I done great damage to my wife, but I've actually... I've behaved in a heretical way because I'm saying on the one hand, I'm the head of this household as Christ is the head of the church and then we misrepresent him. May it not be. There is a way forward. There is a way forward that there is grace here and there is a way to, to be restored 
And so that's um, the model. And I would just say this, ladies, another uncomfortable category today, but abuse. You know, it's been a relatively recent development, which I'm thankful for in pastoral ministry, that it wasn't too long ago that the husband and the wife would come in, pastor hears some kind of problem, and say, okay, I know this, and they go into the marriage problem box. You know, she's squeezing the toothpaste out, you know, at the wrong end of the tooth. We got a marriage problem here, and you pivot to that counseling box. Say, no, there's abuse. Different line of questioning. Is he angry all the time? Does he throw things? You afraid to be around? And I would just say that anybody, any pastor that says there's a guy behaving that way who's claiming, who's demanding that his wife submit, and you're afraid to tell your church because the church will take the, the you know, the submission language of Ephesians 5 and you'll be worse, say that would be, that's not the way it's going to go here. Um, that there's a way forward, that there's healing. And you say, well, is Shaw just talking this way? I say, this has happened two times since I've been here in four years where, that I know about, where there's been an instance and there's been, thankfully, by the grace of God, a path forward. So there's no place for abuse. So what is biblical manhood? Biblical manhood, male leadership in the home, is marked by loving sacrifice, protection, and provision. Maybe you're here today, you say, I, I cannot believe, you know, what, what's he talking... I, and you're just thinking about roles in the marriage, just try this one out, and maybe it'll ease you into Ephesians 5. Say, a man and a lady, say there's a courtship, boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband and wife, and they're walking down one of the paths in Avon, and a masked man pops out of the woods and is ready to rob you both, and the guy takes off the other way and says, you take care of it. <laughs> what do you think? There's something wrong with that? There is something wrong with that. Is that a social construction? Or is that because there's something there anchored in nature? That there's something in a man that, when in tune with Christ, should provide and protect and sacrifice and engage? Those kinds of terms. Now, ladies, we'll go to you. So as that man is leading, and I know verse 22, Yes, you read it out of context, can be hard. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does this mean? A few qualifiers. Notice the intensive pronoun in verse 22, that is your own. It's your own husband. Again, this is talking about a specific husband and wife relationship. So ladies, don't let any tell you're reading this and say, well, is this a blanket statement that every woman should submit to every man? No, that's not what this is talking about. Should you submit to other people's husbands? No, you should not submit to other people's husbands. Should you submit to a husband who's abused? I don't think you should submit to a, a, a person who's so neglected his covenant in this. So what's it talking about? It's talking about in this unit where both the husband and the wife are under the authority of Christ, that she's to treat her own husband by coming underneath him and supporting him. So qualifier one, it's talking about your own husband. Secondly and crucially, that this Paul would appeal to as voluntary. That we don't get the impression that the man demands this. Uh, you're going to do this. That's not what we have here. We have, if the man is leading in such a way where he's sacrificing and protecting and providing, that hopefully what we'll see is that it would be delightful, actually, for 
a godly woman to come underneath that, to support her husband. And so that's, I think, what we're close to here, that in this role, she supports her husband, helps him, speaks well of him, and treats him with respect. What is she like? She's like the church. The church is neither completely passive, the church happens to be very active, and in so doing, that they live out the mission together. Now, on this idea of helping, say, do you all think that Mallory helps me by agreeing with everything that I say? <laughs> no. To your great benefit, I have been saved many heirs, and you've been a better congregation because of her. In other words, that the idea, going back to creation, um, God makes the man, it's not good. He provides a companion to help him out of himself. I can't tell you countless times, and I think you'll talk to other Christian couples, guys plowing forward, going to do whatever he's going to do until the counsel of his wife, kindly and respectfully. Are you sure you want to do that? And many, many, uh, much blessing has flowed out of that. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the wife's role in respecting her godly husband is not being a doormat, not agreeing with him in everything that he does, just you know, doing nothing. Say, no, no, she's a true partner in ministry. One quick story, then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll wrap up here. But years ago, when Billy Graham was at the height of his, well, many, he had many years, he was speaking to massive audience. I mean, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people, and the secular media was really quite keen to say, well, the, the, the Graham home must be a, a very miserable home. They, kind of, they got Ruth Bell Graham in an interview, Billy Graham's wife, and they were asking her questions like, it must be terrible to be married to Billy Graham. I mean, he's gone all the time. Uh, you know, he's famous. Uh, like, I bet if you had to do it again, wouldn't you marry somebody else that's actually around for your kids? And Ruth Bell, with one line, said this. She said, well, you know what? Uh, one day with Billy Graham is better than a lifetime with other men. And I thought, that's why his ministry is prospering, because it was a partnership that she spoke well of them. She understood what God had called them to do. Friends, as I wind down, we do well to remind ourselves of the central truth, and that is that Christ himself is the center of all healthy male and female relationships. We heard powerfully today from Todd and Bridget where they would say, you know what, we relied on Christ to bring healing if that's you today, just saying, I don't know the way out. There is a way out as we draw closer to Christ that there is hope. That you've seen Todd and Bridget, they would love to talk. Your church family is here. There is a way forward in Christ. And beyond even marriage relationships, think of how he's the center of all of our male-female relationships. People ask, me, how do you view the women of your church? I say, well, that's, I view them as daughters, as sisters, as aunts, and as grandmas. And the women, the same for you. Say, well, I've got a lot of sons, I've got a lot of brothers, I've got a lot of uncles, and I've got a lot of uh, grandfathers. To say that's the way the church is, is a family working forward together. Our culture is not doing well in this area. The culture has no plan. The culture would tell my sons, there's no such thing as being a man or a husband. It's a made-up category. Lady, it's a made-up thing. Do what feels. Say, look at God's plan. It's a good plan. There are men and women. It's anchored in nature. There's a good way forward as we live out that plan. There's great freedom and great love. And as we would model this, husband sacrificing, leading, wives supporting and encouraging, 
that those kinds of marriages then become walking illustrations of the gospel. You see those seasoned Christian couples, what is it about them that they've got? Oh, they got grace and forgiveness and kindness and all the best things of what it means to be a Christ follower. So our marriages become invitations to the non-believing world. So may we build each other up in this truth. I will pray, and Jim and the team will come forward. Loving Father, this is, uh, in many ways, a very countercultural thing we talked about today, that there is a role for men, a role for husbands, such a thing as masculinity. And Lord, help us to not follow those stereotypes for any man in the room that said, oh, the, my image of, of, of headship is my lazy boy chair and my remote, but actually to see my image of leadership is the cross. Am I serving well? Am I engaging? Am I working hard for my family? Maybe women here today to say, well, I've not spoken well of my husband. I've made it probably more difficult on him, that they would then see the light of Christ and that both the husband and wife would not only come closer to one another, but supremely towards Christ, that there's healing. For all of us, Lord, to not be embarrassed by your word, especially when we look out and say, oh my goodness, what pain is out there. Help us to see your plan is good, your plan is right, and that give us the strength and the courage to, to, to model it, to seek repentance, to have tender hearts. So we surrender this message to you. Help it to sink in. For Jesus' sake, amen.